There's also the idea that, you know, once cells terminally differentiate, so once they kind of reach their final form um, across the body, they tend to have a pretty limited shelf life. So you can't just indefinitely have this super differentiated tissue and just expect it to kind of stay in good shape until you feel like using it, which could be months or years or decades later. So you kind of need to renew it periodically, pun intended. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, period menstruation. I feel like I'm dropping those words like Julian Moore in The Big Lebowski saying, vagina. Does that word make you uncomfortable? The reality is, though, that about half the population has vaginas, through which a good number of them menstruate on the regular. And yet, most of those who do are encouraged to pretend it never happens. Like farting or underarm odor, a period is a thing the human body should be ashamed to do, even though it's kind of important for things like the actual continuance of the species. Why are we this way? What has led to the idea of periods as shameful and something that people should pretend they do not have? Here to tell us is Kate Clancy, an anthropologist at the University of Illinois in Urbana and author of the book, Period, The Real Story of Menstruation. Kate, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So first, you've studied periods for most of your career. What made you want to actually turn this research into a book? One of the ways that we know each other is through, you know, science blogging, science online, the fact that there's a lot of us who really care about science communication in the world. And um, for years, I wrote for Scientific American um, as part of their blog network that I don't believe exists anymore, but I'm not sure. Um, And my editor found me that way, that I was writing online Um, for Scientific American. And when she first asked me if I was thinking about writing a book, if I wanted to, I was a pre-tenure assistant professor. And so my answer was no, because science professors writing books for the public um, or even for academic audiences were hugely frowned upon at the time. Um, But years later, I kind of returned to the idea. We stayed in touch. I was thinking about it. And when I thought about like, what would I really be excited about? What would I really want to talk to more people about um, what are the things that I find nerdiest and most fun in the world, I kept coming back to periods. Um, I've been studying the menstrual cycle for 20 years, um, but really only a small part of what I do is really specifically about menstruation. And I was really delighted at the chance to kind of dig into this thing that I noticed made people wrinkle their nose, made them lean back a little bit, um, that people would use, you know, even in academic contexts, we use weird ways to talk around periods. Um, And that, you know, the little that I knew about it, uh, periods had been largely described scientifically as a fairly useless process. And just sort of the more that I thought about it, the more I wanted to dig into that idea and inquire whether that was really the case. And you note in the book that there is a lot of stigma around periods. I mean, there's, there's just tons. But they're also studied a lot in anthropology. Like anthropologists love themselves some menstruation. Why is that? Um. I think anthropologists love themselves some menstruation for a couple of reasons. One is we really pride ourselves on paying attention to the taboo. Um, we, we pride ourselves on digging into the kinds of things other people won't talk about. Um, but I also think there's a fair bit of voyeurism slash racism and colonialism embedded in certainly earlier stories and earlier ethnographies that included menstruation. Um, It was a lot of white dudes going to uh, countries from which they did not originate and asking other men questions about what was happening in those populations and then getting really bizarre questions, really bizarre answers back that they breathlessly told other people as though they are true 
Um, and then as um, other people started practicing anthropology, people of color, uh, women, women of color, we started to hear different narratives around menstruation. And so uh, one, that it's not nearly as taboo as we once thought. Um, and, and two, that it offers actually a real chance for rest, relaxation, reflection, concentration of the sacred that was not really appreciated in some of those early anthropological takes. And I was really struck by the fact that the book is called period, but there's actually not a lot of discussion of the process like you might get in health class, you know, how the different hormones rise and fall over a roughly 28 day time frame and how the body reacts to those different hormones. And as you noted in the book, nothing in this book is going to be about how to remove your own IUD. Instead, it's more about the social factors and the scientific ideas that kind of influence why we see menstruation in the way that we do. And I was wondering why you decided to pursue this particular angle instead of like a user's guide to the period. I really wanted to avoid a lot of those user guides, self-help type books. One, because that's all we see in the market. Um, we see a lot of fix your period, fix your fertility, balance your hormones, um, all of the stuff around, you know, this is how your body works, presumes a normal, that is, okay, a 28-day cycle where the hormones do this and that, and this is how your body is supposed to respond. And if your body is not acting this way, then it's acting that it's out of whack or out of balance. And I'm going to teach you how to get back to it with kale and flax seeds and gentle yoga only, or whatever it is that the very, the different people are advocating for in these various books. Um, and I am deeply resentful of that take for two things, for two reasons. One is why do we always frame it as something that needs to be fixed or adjusted? Um, and why is that always that individual's responsibility? But two, like, it's not scientifically accurate, right? Like I, I have a whole chapter on normality and on the ways in which the socially constructed normal menstrual cycle does not actually in any way resemble the actual typical menstrual cycle. So if everything that we are trying to force people towards and be complicit in, in, in conforming towards doesn't match reality, how is that scientifically sound or a good idea for any of our bodies? Yeah. And you also note that the way that we've learned about the menstrual cycle, you don't consider that to be exceptionally useful. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on why not. There's a couple of reasons. And, you know, my thinking changes about this sometimes, you know, I, or I feel like my thinking has evolved a little bit. Um, there's some really, really interesting research out there that suggests that, you know, when we started providing more scientific explanations of menstrual cycles and periods, that it was quite um, comforting and useful to the people who learned about periods in that way. Um, because they kind of knew what to expect and knew what it meant. And that was a really good thing. So I think the ways that we've scientized the menstrual cycle has had some positive benefits. It certainly is better than what a lot of people used to have across many different cultures, including the US, which is knowing nothing about it. And then one day bleeding and thinking that you're dying. <laughs> um, so certainly it is better than no knowledge. The problem is that because cultural biases sneak into science like they sneak into anything else, that scientized story is actually still a pretty, pretty negative one. We're learning about how menstruation is a failed process of reproduction. We're learning that uh, menstruation is painful and gross and icky. Um, 
And we're not actually learning the things that upon reflection, um, surveyed adults actually say they want, which is like, okay, that's great that you've told me all this stuff about it, but how do I actually manage it? How do I handle it? Like, I don't know about you, but I had a number of issues over, you know, in my first couple of years menstruating where I bled through stuff because I didn't totally get how it can sometimes stop and start, how it behaves differently when you're lying down versus standing up, how sweat interacts with menstrual blood and the wicking properties of pads. Like I, I got period blood on lots of things when I was a kid. I can't imagine I was alone. (laughs) And like, if somebody had explained more things to me, I might've sort of avoided some of those kinds of situations. Is there, you know, you mentioned that the kind of scientification of the menstrual cycle has had some positive effects, um, but also some negative ones. Is there a method that you think would be better or like a better kind of angle on it? This is the part that I've been thinking a lot about lately because, you know, there has for a long time been this idea that sex segregated sex education is a good thing. Um, and just in general, that sex segregated education is like good for girls and not good for boys. And so there's this way where, um, you know, we've been doing this for sex ed for a long time, but I'm beginning to wonder if that's a really a good idea. Um, is it more stigmatizing to have boys and girls separated and then have them learn about their bodies? Um, or would it be better if they actually learned about them all together? Um, the morning emissions that young boys experience that can be very embarrassing for them. Um, maybe they would just be way too mortified to learn about those things in a lot in a mixed sex audience. Um, or maybe everybody learning about them would reduce some of the stigma. Um, learning that uh, tampons are uncomfortable for some people and some people prefer pads. Learning that there's such a thing as a reusable menstrual cup and a little bit about how to use it. Maybe everybody learning about those things would reduce the stigma just a little bit. Maybe it would also be mortifying, but in the long run, might it be better if everybody knows about all of these things instead of it being behind closed doors, learning about these things just in a group. Um, The last reason I'm concerned about that is that we've got lots of non-binary and trans kids out there. And where do you plan on putting them during these conversations? Are you going to put them with their assigned sex at birth? Are you going to put them with their because they also have a completely potentially different set of needs than this really binarizing notion you have about what we should be teaching kids about when it comes to um, sex and reproduction. So I would, so for that reason as well, I'm increasingly not super excited about this whole boys go in this room, girls go in another room. And instead I'd welcome a much larger, broader conversation that includes everybody in the same space. I also think it might be useful to, have that kind of incorporated with general biology instead of like, oh, we're going to talk about the reproductive system, which is a very, very different thing from the rest of your body, which it isn't at all, as you point out in numerous ways throughout this book. Um, And it's something about which we are mostly very uneducated. Like a lot of people don't get education on like how we poop (laughs) or pee. (laughs) You know. I re- it really does. It really does perplex me when I think about, you know, one of my kids is um, just completed his first year of high school and um, he had this like general science sort of biology class this year um, that I found really disappointing because there was a nutrition segment that was all about following the FDA MyPlate guidelines um, in a way that was incredibly ascientific. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at the stuff and I'm like, okay, honey, I'm going to help you fill this out or I'm going to help you complete your homework. 
but I need you to understand that we are putting down, you, you know, you are answering this to get this right, but this is not actually how any of this stuff works, you know? Um, and that was about it. And, and then there was a little bit, they learned a little bit on genetics that dealt with humans as well, but like, wouldn't it be so much more useful if the biology class that our kids got was one that actually spent a ton of time on the actual practical elements of human biology and how much would that improve scientific literacy and get people more excited? Cause like, who doesn't love to navel gaze, right? Like at your literal navel, right? Sometimes. Like <laughs> let's think about umbilical cords and how absolutely wild they are. Like, isn't that a cool introduction? So I, I would love to see this instead of its own one-off thing, this actually just be part of the science curriculum. So this kind of links up with this, but throughout the book, you note that a lot of ideas about periods and about reproduction in general have been filtered through the lens of white femininity, most particularly the charming waiting egg and the manifest destiny sperm. And I was wondering, are there other ways, what are the other ways in which this white femininity manifests in the reproductive cycle? I think the big one is the passivity that you, that you've brought up, um, that we've learned, you know, because of the way femininity within whiteness is constructed, we see it as very passive. We see it as, um, service, right. In service to others. Um, but the other big way I think it shows up is actually in fat phobia and fat stigma. So another major part of white femininity is around slenderness. And there's this really amazing history. I mean, you know, um, the book that I cite a lot in the book is fearing the black body. Um, by Sabrina Strings, which is an amazing book that everyone should read. Um, and she charts this really brilliant history of this move towards an ascetic aesthetic. <laughs> um, and uh, and that this is a very explicit part of Protestant Protestantism, an explicit part of whiteness, and that there are ways in which then, of course, that um, desire for feminine thinness then got pushed towards everybody else. Again, in a lot of ways, hearkening back to the ways we construct an idea of normality or an idea of health with often a very small subset of people um, and those people who carry a lot of privilege. And then we try to enforce that idea of normality and health. And again, we conflate them on a whole bunch of different people. So thinness is not actually any healthier than any other body size for a lot of different things that we have actually assumed, you know, we've assumed obesity to be a problem in a lot of things where actually the issue is there's a metabolic issue that might downstream create more adipose tissue, but it's not the adiposity itself that's causing the problem. It's actually the metabolic issue. Um, and, and actually in a lot of different ways that we understand the menstrual cycle, it's now pretty clear to me that when we see an issue that we blame on obesity or we blame on fatness, the actual problem is some kind of metabolic issue that if we address that, it would actually cause the problem but or actually solve the problem. So we're definitely, I have a whole question, a whole set of questions on normal distribution. But before we get there, um, I wanted to get a little bit of basic stuff out of the way. So which species do menstruate? Because my understanding is this is a relatively rare activity among mammals. Um, I would have to brush up on this to remember exactly, or look at like uh, Beverly Strassman's 96 paper, 1996 paper to see. But I mean, there's just a handful of primates that menstruate and the elephant shrew, the spiny mouse. There's a bat. And I think there's a bat. There's and I think bat. that's it. 
And there's only a handful of primates, right? Who are the species, you know, these are, this is the order that we are, that we belong to. Um, this is where you see apes, monkeys, and things like that. Um, there's only a handful of other species that show any sign of it. And I believe it's primarily just apes. I think chimps and bonobos, we see a little bit. Um, I don't know that we've seen any in gorillas, but it's, you know, gorillas are, it would be harder to see. Um, and that's, if I recall correctly, that's about it. And I was wondering why, why is that? Like, I know it's still an open scientific question, why humans menstruate. Um, but it does seem like a bit of an energetic waste. Like, why not reabsorb the grown lining and the vessels or keep them permanently in place? Like, why are we, you know, cycling this stuff through and, and devoting energy to this? So there's a couple of things to think about. The So the research that I find most compelling in terms of why we menstruate is really specifically just about humans. So it's hard for me to extrapolate and ask more broadly about some of these other species and why they menstruate. And it's very possible that there are entirely different reasons. One of the really wild things, and I've been learning this as I've been working on my next book as well, because my next book is around pregnancy and pregnancy loss, is that um, placental mammals are so much more variable than we tend to give them credit for. Um, even placentation, the way that placentas work and the maternal decidua, so that's the, you know, the endometrium that connects to the placenta, um, the, the viral DNA that we stole from viruses that tried to invade our germline that produced those plac that placenta formation, that's evolved 10 to 12 different times in the mammal lineage. So it's not that there was like one time that this happened and then all of us branched off of that one evolutionary tree where the, we all have the exact same syncytons that make us insidia trophoblast and make placental blah, blah, blah. So when it comes to asking the question of like, why do we menstruate? I don't know that we're going to be able to trace back and say that there's the same reason for everybody. What I can say for humans is that this exactly the question that you've asked around, like, it seems energetically costly. It seems like a waste. Why would we do this? Um, that some of the original thinking around that is around this idea of um, energy economy and terminal differentiation. So the energy economy hypothesis that Beverly Strassman put forward, that one was looking at, you know, basically asking this question of like, why wouldn't you just hang on to endometrium indefinitely until you need it? And her thinking was, it's actually more costly to maintain like a super differentiated rich, rich tissue. Um, the endometrium is full of all these glands that have all sorts of nutrients and immune cells in them that are needed if a trophoblast shows up and then that whole interfacing has to occur, um, you can't just kind of hold on to those glands and all their, that yummy broth like indefinitely. So it actually is more energy co energetically costly to just indefinitely hang on to that than to get rid of that. So I think there's something to that hypothesis. There's also the idea that, you know, once cells terminally differentiate, so once they kind of reach their final form, um, across the body, they tend to have a pretty limited shelf life. So you can't just indefinitely have this super differentiated tissue and just expect it to kind of stay in good shape until you feel like using it, could, which could be months or years or decades later. So you kind of need to renew it periodically, pun intended, um, in order to have something that is feasible and will actually provide an appropriate environment for a trophoblast that might come along, you know, for trophoblastic cells that might come along and want to have a little conversation. So those are sort of like the big picture things, but then there's this one other piece just to briefly talk about, which is sort of this bigger question of like, so then why do we do it so much? Like, and, and yeah, and, like, why know, aren't we seasonal like cats right. or cows? Right. So there are induced ovulators that, um, that are, that are ovulating in the presence of 
um, you know, in the presence of sperm or in the presence of semen or that type of material. Um, there are induced ovulators that only ovulate if they receive vaginal penetration. So those are the triggers for time to ovulate, time to grow that endometrium, try to do all the stuff that we need to do to make a baby. Um, but we're what are called spontaneous um, ovulators, which is actually like neither of these terms are perfect. And there's a ton of overlap actually, but generally spontaneous means we're not responding to those other things I mentioned. So like sex related phenomena, um, but we do actually vary with environmental phenomena. Um, so you can be a seasonal breeder actually in part because, you know, in certain periods, you don't have enough energy to make us to, to menstruate um, or to have an estrous cycle or whatever. So some of that could be environmental. And then some of it is, you know, pheromonal, hormonal, whatever. And then we're sort of talking more about induced type stuff. Um, with humans, we menstruate like 400 plus times. Um, and, you know, while that is higher than perhaps we have done it in the past when we didn't have any access to contraception, um, it's still like we were still menstruating plenty before as well, like at least a hundred times in our lifetime. And we did it in clusters, right? We'd like menstruate like four or five cycles in a row. Then we'd get, you know, then we'd get pregnant, then we'd lactate, then we'd resume again. So it's not that it was just like once a year that we just have a period or something. There were plenty of clusters that were monthly ish. Um, so we had this high frequency phenomena, even if it was in clusters as opposed to continuous, um, it seems like this is creating an opportunity for the endometrium, which again, be eventually becomes the deciduum when it's talking to a placenta and to a fetus to practice all of that sort of tissue infrastructure and to do all the remodeling it needs to create a suitable environment for potential trophoblast and fetus. So without all of that practice, you actually increase the risk of things like preeclampsia, which is something where you see the trophoblast unable to invade as deeply and get to those spiral arteries and sort of tell them to dilate more, to create more blood flow, um, to help the fetus grow. Um, you see intrauterine growth restriction, you see things like that. And you see that in people who've had fewer periods, you see it in people who've had their, who it's their very first pregnancy. Um, and you see it in people who are very young when they have their first kid. So all people who've, whose uteruses have not had a ton of practice. So to me, that's the other reason why we see it happen as much as it is. And rather than see it as a waste, I think it's useful seeing, you know, like I don't see all the times I go to the gym as a waste and only the day that I'm doing one rep max testing as the important day, right? All of those days of practice matter. Or if I were training for a 10K, all of those practice runs are important not just race day. If anything, what do we all talk about? Those of us who are athletes, right? Is to actually put less emphasis on race day or testing day and more emphasis on the training. And I think that that's the way we should be thinking about the uterus too. So I want to get forward to things like normal distribution, but we need to go back because you just said something that absolutely boggled my mind. So we have to go back. And the thing we have to go back on is that there's viral DNA that we somehow incorporated that caused us to form a placenta? Oh yeah. Can you, okay. Okay. You need to explain this because this is not in the book and I've never heard of this in my life and I need to hear more. Well, cause this is going to be in the next book. Um, so, because I don't really talk about placentas in this book, cause I'm talking about periods, the stuff that like precede needing a placenta for anything. Right. So I'm just, I'm going to really hope I get all this right. Cause I'm only partway through interviewing people to make sure that like all the papers that I'm reading, I'm understanding what's going on. But, um, you know, between 25, 35 million years ago, 
uh, you know, there was a virus, there was a retrovirus that probably invaded the germline of some hominin-like, well, 25, 35, it wasn't even hominin-like, right? Maybe something primate-like. Some kind um, of lemur thingy. Maybe something, something yeah. lemurish, something catarine-ish. I have not had to teach primate evolution in a long time, so I'm not going to pretend to remember what kind of primate would have been around then. Some old primate a long time ago. Uh, there was some kind of retrovirus that invaded the germline, gametes, and probably got that person sick in some way. But this is how a lot of DNA gets into us. Um, is actually through like when a virus or retrovirus tries to invade our germline. Um, the way they do that is they're inserting their, the short version is basically they're inserting their DNA into our cells, right? So a lot of times we're like, let's keep that. And most of it's junk. A lot of it's even deleterious. So for the most part, you know, it, it, it does absolutely play a role in the evolution of the host, but very infrequently. Um, but something that's happened like 10 to 12 times across placental mammals. So I'm just talking about the primate time. Um, it's actually two different ones. Uh, there's a syncytin one and a syncytin two. Uh, oh, wait, or is it AB? Now I'm going to forget because mice have one and two and humans have A and B, I think. Um, but we have two different syncytins that uh, we, you know, stole the DNA at two different points. And it's because of that DNA that, and these are envelope proteins. So it's because of these DNA that we have some certain developmental properties of our trophoblasts. Those are the cells that go in and, and go into the um, decidua of the parent and then sort of um, start negotiations <laughs> about like, hey, can I go over here? Can I open this up? Can we do this? And, you know, they start figuring out how they're going to work together um, to move towards placentation. And so, uh, and then the other really big purpose for these syncytins um, is probably antiviral as well. So it's not you know, the initial story for, for these various proteins is, oh, this is how that sneaky, uh, nasty trophoblast goes in and is a parasite and goes in and like steals from mom and makes it to, and like evades her immune defenses. Increasingly, that is yet again, another bro story of like, you know, we love to imagine competition and conflict um, when actually what's going on is cooperation. And, uh, and so really I think it's less about, Ooh, we're so sneaky and evading maternal defenses. And instead it's more, Hey, let's see if we can figure this out. And let's also make sure that like no viruses get in and mess this whole thing up that we're trying to produce here. That's wild. I had no idea. <laughs> okay. Now we're talking about normal stuff though. Because yes. I'm interested in this. Okay. And when we say normal stuff, um, one of the things that is a really big running theme through this book is that there are many factors of menstruation that are not normally distributed. And when we say normal, we have a very specific definition. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about what a normal distribution is. Sure. So the, the, the just basic definition of normal distribution is that like, if you take an average, like if you have a whole bunch of values of a given trait, um, you know, and you take the average, you should see, um, if any of you are familiar with the term histogram or a bell curve, you should see a bell curve that looks even on both sides. So there's about the same number of individuals on either side, and you see kind of a slowly declining number of them out into these tails. So normally distributed means that bell looks like a nice bell. Um, not normally distributed can mean the bell looks super smushed, like somebody punched it on one side. Um, you can have a bimodal distribution where you have actually a big gap in the middle and then two bumps. Um, so traits and like the way that they present in a given population, not just for when it comes to menstrual cycles, but across a lot of different things are just not normally distributed. 
And yet we so often, even when we know better statistically, calculate a mean or look at what's happening in what we perceive to be the majority and assume that that those traits represent like a health, uh, like a health ideal. I, I wanted to kind of expand on that. Why are scientists so reliant on these normal distributions when kind of trying to describe the human body? Hmm. I'm trying to not just give the mean answer, which is laziness, um, and think through like, you know, again, I think part of it is that, you know, the, the older definition of normal was simply functional. Like when somebody was trying to characterize the normal kidney, what they were trying to do is say, here is how a kidney works. This is what renal function is. And there was, there's been a lot of drift in the term. And so now there's this conflation. So the thing is, is in the, in its original meaning, just sort of describing the functionality of something normal is not a bad thing to think through. The issue is the drift and that now we're conflating normal with healthy or conflating it with ideal. So I think part of the reason we continue to use this normal framing and this normal statistical application is because we're trying to evade the reality of the fact that these terms are all conflated and trying to sort of, so the good answer, the nice answer is I think we're forgetting about all that other stuff. And we're just sort of trying to maintain this like normal means functional. Um, but I think the less good answer also is that we don't really respect or think about how skewed most of our samples are um, because of the way recruitment and sample selection works for the majority of human subject research. And I'd imagine a lot of animal research as well where we are intentionally seeking homogenous, quote unquote, healthy samples or healthy individuals without certain types of medical conditions, not on certain types of medications. And then we're create, we're understanding a, a quote unquote normal distribution from that population. Then we're extrapolating those data to everybody. So when we're doing clinical trial research to figure out treatments and pharmaceuticals for people, we have these homogenous populations that don't represent everybody. When we're trying to understand variations in body size or menstrual cycle characteristics or whatever, we're going to have like a mostly cisgender white female population. I mean, my research, you can absolutely see that, um, you know, for some of our samples, certainly. Um, and I think that that's, I, I think that's the other issue is that we don't really acknowledge the implicit bias that comes from the ways that we, we, um, recruit from the beginning. I was actually also wondering if there's room for statistical bias as well, like scientists. And I, I say this as a former scientist, we have a, a desire to make everything, to describe everything by saying, here is the one way things work that is average and everything else is going to fall on one side or the other of that average. And that does work for some things, but I don't necessarily think that's the most accurate way to actually describe some phenomena, right? And and I wonder if that is kind of something that we've been kind of statistically forced into, um, this kind of overemphasis on find one mean and then everything else goes along the sides. Absolutely. Or find a normal range, right? Um, if you've ever had blood work, if something feels wrong, your doctor orders blood work and all the blood work comes back, quote unquote, normal. That means all the things they measured was it was within, was within what their laboratory has decided constitutes a normal range. Um, but that may not be normal range for you. 
right? If you're measured, if this is why actually in our research, we measure people every single day through a menstrual cycle. And we think that that's so important is that when people are like, here's the normal range for estrogen, like, do you know how much estrogen varies every day for a person? Like, how can you calculate a normal range? That doesn't make sense. Same with progesterone, same with cortisol, even, um, you know, there is variability from day to day in so many markers that we use to indicate health. Um, and yet we use these normal ranges as kind of a, you know, we're stuck because of the way that clinical medicine works. Oh, you're not feeling well. I'll take your blood work today. Not you're not feeling well. Let's inquire backwards. Let's look, let's measure you for a while prospectively forwards. Let's understand the shape of the problem. No, let's take this one blood blood sample today and see if that is informative of whatever it is you're saying is an issue, right? So there are so many different constraints that wedge us towards or force us towards well, the easiest thing to do is to calculate a mean, calculate a range and see if you fit in it. There's also, I think, something that where we, we want to find a range, we often want to find a really small range, right? And I think about this because um, of elephants and the fact that when elephants go into must, um, the male elephant will have a testosterone spike of up to 60 times higher than normal. <laughs> and wow. that is, in theory, in the normal range of testosterone for an elephant between like one and 60 times mm -hmm. what that is. Um, and so, you know, that's a really huge range. Um, and so I wonder if sometimes we try to kind of impose artificially small ranges on things that might not necessarily be the case. I know that that's what we want a lot of times um, and that your study is considered good if you have a smaller range. I know that there's a lot of not just p-hacking, you know, people who um, manipulate their data in an unethical way, but like, I don't know, gentler forms of unethical behavior where they change the way they represent a figure, um, you know, in terms of, I'm just going to show the top part of the standard error and the bottom part of the lower curve standard error in this picture. So you don't see how much they actually overlap when we look at it all together or various things like that. Like we're kind of encouraged to create the appearance of strong results. And I think the idea of a large range for whatever reason is not consistent with this idea that like, uh, is not consistent with the idea that a small range equals really powerful results. And so I actually wanted to, we've gotten to this a little bit, but I wanted to ask like, what do you think should be the place of normal distributions? Because I recognize that we want to say, okay, this particular variation is probably fine, but this may be pathological. Like, you know, there's variation in iron levels, but if your iron levels are really, really super low, it's a problem. And so mm -hmm. like, is there a balance between defining something as normal for benefit as opposed to accidentally doing harm? I think there's a, I mean, obviously I don't, I don't diagnose people for a living. I'm not a medical doctor. So obviously saying with those caveats that I am sure there are absolutely some good clinical thresholds out there where it's like, if you have this number, you're okay. And if you have this number, you're not, and it doesn't matter what type of body you're in. That's just how it is. I am positive. There are tons of people of examples. People could quickly give me around that, but just as much as there are those types of examples, I am sure that there are plenty of examples where if we actually measure a person over time, we might have a much better understanding of their range of normal um, or their range of typical, really, I should say, um, and that that would actually be more informative. So um, I'll give an example for myself. I am a very muscular person and I lift a lot of weights. 
I have a lot more muscle mass than a typical person assigned female at birth and a typical cis woman. As a result, my creatinine numbers are outside the normal range. And every time I get typical blood work, I, my creatinine is very high. And then as a result, my GFR, um, which is just a manipulation of your creatinine, um, is also really low. And, and I by get GFR, you mean it's actually a measure of kidney function. So yes. GFR is glomerular filtration rate. And it's a measure of how people think, how well people think your kidneys are doing. Right. But it's simply a measure of like what age and creatinine. <laughs> Like it's not actually a measure of your kidneys. It, it just says how much creatinine is in your blood, which we're using as a really gross proxy for kidney function. Um, so I get it flagged every time and I get this whole, you need to drink more water. Uh, and then I finally went and got a kidney. Like I, I went to a kidney specialist finally, cause I was, I was starting to get scared, you know, cause I keep getting these high readings and I keep being told there's something wrong with me. As soon as I walked in the door, the nurse practitioner renal specialist looked at me and said, what are you even here for? Um, and I was like, I explained. And she was like, you lift weights, don't you? And I was like, yeah. She was like, she just looked at me. Right. And she like gestured to my body and she was like, you're not, this is, this is just from the fact that you lift weights. <laughs> so there was this way where like, I was for multiple years of continuing to get these high readings. I was really nervous about like, what does this actually mean for my body? Um, whereas you know, if we had actually paid attention to multiple indicators of health, if we had measured me prospectively over a period of time, if we had looked at it in concert with my activity patterns and protein consumption, because I eat a lot of protein, uh, we might've had a little more insight into why that number was the way it was, and then discarded any idea that it might've been pathological. Um, you know, there's also the fact that some people just have naturally really low blood pressure that some people have really low heart rate, that some people are naturally warmer or cooler. And so when you go and get your temperature read, they're like, oh my gosh, why are you so warm today? Are you sick? It's like, no, I just always read a 99. Why are you so cold? I just always read a 97. Like there are people like that. Um, and I think, you know, yes, if you have a relationship with a doctor over time, which is pretty hard to do in our insurance landscape and how much people move around. But if you develop a relationship over time, then yes, they believe you over time. But if not, and they don't match their idea of clinical normal, you're going to constantly get flagged as a problem or a really major problem will get missed because you'll conform to clinical normal, but it won't be your normal. So I also wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the narrative idea of normal, because this is another thing that you emphasize is like, we have come up with this idea of a normal menstrual cycle because we want the menstrual cycle to be tidy. And I find this interesting because like, I feel we want most of our bodily functions to be tidy, right? We don't like periods. Those are messy. We don't like acne. It's messy. We don't like sweat. Messy. <laughs> Farts. Messy. <laughs> you know? Um, and so it's really interesting how these ideas of normality also arise out of ideas of personal cleanliness. Um, and I was wondering, like, where do those ideas kind of come from? You know, I, to me, what it immediately brings to mind is still the ascetic aesthetic that to be contained, to be pure is to be holy. And I still, you know, like the stuff I was talking about in terms of, um, you know, Dr. String's really amazing book. Um, I think that a lot of the containment and care and purity and health 
and no appearance of disgustingness. Like how do how do Hollywood people cry? Just that nice little tear running down their face. How do I cry? Like disgusting slobber, red eyes, my entire face puffs up. Like it's not the pretty, you know, we can't even re- like reflect in a real way how bodies work in terms of how I would say that's the, the way screen. people in Hollywood cry when they want to win an Oscar. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They cry pretty when they don't want to win an Oscar, but they cry ugly when they want to win an Oscar. That's yes. That's a really, that's an important distinction for sure. Um, Anyway, I, I I think so. Again, to me, there's a way where um, a lot of sort of white Protestant, white Western culture is um, shows up in how we are expected in our, how, how our bodies are expected to act. And then again, just like all the rest of colonialism, is try you know we try to enforce it and push it on all bodies. Um, you know, it's not good for anybody necessarily to constantly contain so much of ourselves and ta- try not to be biological beings. Um, but it's also especially harmful to punish people for not having the correct type of body. And I feel like that's a lot of what we see when we see these enforcements of, um, of non-biologicalness. One of the things I found really interesting in this book is there's a kind of a struggle, and, and I feel this is a struggle kind of in research, between what we have defined as normal, with the air quote normal, right, in terms of distribution and in terms of behavior and in terms of like hormones and everything else. And we've defined that in a very kind of like known and scientific sort of way. But there's a lot of tension between that and the amount that we actually don't know. Because there's a great deal of ignorance underlying these like known normal distributions. Um, And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of that because one of the things that you became pretty well known for during the COVID-19 pandemic that you covered in the book was the way different things that we might not think of might change periods. And one of them is the COVID vaccine and how it affected periods. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you started kind of studying that topic. Sure. I mean, the way it first started is my colleague, Dr. Katie Lee, who's a, an assistant professor of anthropology at Tulane. She was a postdoc at WashU at the time um, and a former student of mine. She reached out to me because she was, by being at WashU Medical School, she was one of those folks who was one of, um, you know, a very early person who was able to get vaccinated early in 2021. Um, and she kind of had a group text with a few other people she knew um, who also had early access and they were all talking over symptoms and and sort of side effects of the vaccine. And something that surprised them were that several of them were saying, you know, my period was really funky, or I bled for the first time in years, even though I'm on an IUD. Um, and Katie reached out to me. I knew nothing about it. I myself also hadn't been vaccinated yet. Um, but only a few weeks later, I actually had the exact experience that she described. <laughs> and I had a very heavy period. I was sitting actually where I'm sitting right now um, when I realized what a big deal, like how uncomfortable I was and how this period was so much worse than one I'd experienced for years. Um, because I was like, you know, that posture when you just have like really heavy flow where you just kind of curl and you just feel everything coming out of your body. And you're just, I just had that, that sensation. I remember sitting with that body posture and then getting on Twitter. (laughs) So I just sat here on my little laptop and I was like, has anyone else had this happen to them? And then holy moly, the, the floodgates, not just menstrually, but Twitterly opened. And um, they're very similar in a lot of ways. They really are. Uh, And, you know, there was a lot, there were a lot of people with similar experiences. 
Um, a couple other things that we found interesting were the number of people reporting breakthrough bleeding, um, not just heavy bleeding. Uh, some people reporting lighter bleeding. And then a lot of postmenopausal people saying, I had bleeding. I've bled in 10 years. You know, so, you know, we decided to put something together that acknowledged that range of experience. Um, and in fact, there, as far as I can tell, other groups that have started to look at this work more prospectively, uh, meaning, you know, from the point forward rather than retrospective, where we were asking people about experiences in the past, though we also sort of like in real time as opposed to retrospective, but whatever. Um, you know, we're really the ones who spent a lot of time working on the gender inclusive language of our work, reaching out to uh, trans and non-binary populations to make sure that we had a lot of them represented so that we could understand the experience of those on gender affirming hormones that expressly tried to reach out to and recruit postmenopausal people as well. So we could see people with uteruses who had, who were postmenopausal, they were also experiencing symptoms. So we had a really wide range of people represented in our study. And that was really a high priority for us. Um, I don't know if you have more specific questions beyond that, but I think the one other thing I'll say about that uh, is the other thing we were really struck by is how instantly we were attacked for doing this research. So Katie and I, I think, came to this work with the approach of, don't we all deserve to know if something's going to happen? And wouldn't it be better to know than be surprised. Um, and, you know, I like every chance I've had to get vaccinated, I've gotten vaccinated. I even tried to get a booster last week and was denied at my local CVS, which is a whole other conversation we could have because <laughs> I would like to be more protected right now at the stage of the pandemic when at the, the nobody gives a shit anymore, but there's still a virus stage. Um, this is when I actually really want a booster and I can't get one because my asthma is not considered serious enough. Um, Anyway, the, the thing I was really struck by was how hard people came down on us. So there were plenty of journalists who reached out to us and were really intrigued themselves had this happen to them. And that's why they were covering it. But then the MDs that they interviewed to get, you know, a balanced take all said the same one of two things. They either said it's pandemic stress, not the, you know, not the vaccine, or they said, there's no biological mechanism that could possibly explain a relationship here. Um, and so we were sort of gaslit from the beginning. Um, and in fact, usually the subheads of most of these articles were the doctor's quote, not our quotes. So doctor so-and-so says no biological mechanism. Doctor so-and-so says no cause for concern. Um, so from the beginning, even though we were by the end of the study had 165,000 participants um, and many, many more people who were really curious and interested, um, the overall narrative from the medical establishment was these are silly ladies with their silly feelings doing their silly research and none of it is real. So we're going to get back to the intersection of the reproductive system and the immune system because it's really cool. Um, but I had more follow-up questions. Um, and I would, first of all, I was wondering, you know, this was particularly the COVID vaccine. Um, do you think it's possible that other vaccines might have this effect? And we simply haven't seen it because we don't have large populations of people all getting a vaccine at the same time and then comparing side effects. Yes, 100%. There's a couple things. One is most of our vaccines we receive in childhood. So we're not necessarily going to see menstrually related changes at that time because there isn't really much going on in the uterus that would lead to there being downstream effects in that organ. Um, you know, from 
babies who have uteruses. I'm not worried about any of them menstruating. Um, this really only makes sense in an, a uterus that is starting to be hormonally active and starting to actually have all that tissue remodeling and stuff happen. Um, there is actually some decent evidence that the HPV vaccine does do this. Um, and the evidence is not great because it's like, have people gone into the hospital for bleeding or have they gone to see their doctor for bleeding, which is a pretty extreme threshold to see it. But even with that pretty extreme threshold, we do see a higher incidence after the HPV vaccine. There are also a number of other pharmaceuticals that actually do this. So um, epidural injections that people sometimes receive for pain cause bleeding and post and postmenopausal bleeding, um, which is terrifying if you don't know that it might happen. Um, so the thing is, is there are lots of things that can induce menstrual bleeding or change menstrual bleeding in some meaningful way. Um, but for the most part, it's not something that we seem to think is worthy of informing the patient that it could happen. And we don't, and we don't, we also, some of them come as a surprise in exa for exactly the reason you've said, because, you know, for something like this, this was an adult vaccine. It was rolled out all at once. So we were all experiencing these side effects together. Um, for a lot of other treatments, we're experiencing them somewhat in isolation. So if nobody's directly studying it, nobody's putting these things together. Yeah. I was actually wondering if there's potential to maybe do like a study around like the flu vaccine, you know, which mm -hmm. people get every year. So, right. you know, there's been some be clinical to... trials. Yeah. So the work hasn't been published, but um, Dr. Talat at Johns Hopkins does a lot of vaccine trial research and you can find her trial results that look at ovarian hormones and, um, and flu vaccine. And there was not, um, through no fault of her own, but you know, just, there wasn't, um, as high subject follow-up as I think they wanted. So sample size wasn't super high, but they didn't find a difference in terms of estrogen and progesterone between the two groups. So like vaccinated, unvaccinated, but there were no menstrual questions in it. Right. So there are people who are starting to think, which is great about doing these post-market surveys or these flu, since it happens every year, these flu studies of menstruation, uh, I've applied for funding to do flu research, to do flu vaccine research and COVID vaccine research. We've received none of it, um, but we're certainly interested in doing that work. And I think others are too, um, but it's hard to find the funding. And, you know, you mentioned that you faced a lot of skepticism from the medical establishment around these findings. Um, but I was also wondering, do you, you mentioned that, you know, people have a right to know and a right to expect. Um, like to know what they could expect from these side effects. But do you worry that it might affect whether or not people got boosters or vaccinated? Because, you know, even if you know you might expect it, that seems really frightening and wrong to a lot of people who have been taught that their menstrual cycles are regular and tidy. Sure. I mean, I'll say personally, the thing that I dread after the COVID vaccines is not actually how it's going to change my period, partly because for me, at least it really changed with the first injection a little bit with the second, and then it hasn't with subsequent boosters. Um, but the other thing is that uh, what affects me way worse is I get knocked out after those vaccines. I am very sick for a good day and a half. Um, fever, fatigue, can't get out of bed, body aches, the whole nine yards, and it's gotten worse with every vaccine. So I dread it. It's incredibly uncomfortable. And I still desperately want another booster. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm So in, I guess the thing is, is we are actually doing some research on exactly this question. We are looking at vaccine sentiment and how people feel around side effects. Um, it's not published yet. We are still sort of writing up the first draft, but what I can basically say so far is that 
I don't believe that people are turned away from vaccines um, or any medical treatment when they are given empathetic, realistic information about side effects. I actually think what drives people away from medicine and creates distrust around vaccines is when they are betrayed over and over again by being lied to, by being by paternalism, by being told they don't actually need to know all these things, not to worry about these things. Um, I think the amount of paternalism in science actually does far more harm than disclosure and empathy. Um, I think just telling somebody straight off the bat, yeah, you're going to have a period. It's going to be really nasty. It's going to be so uncomfortable. See ya. Yeah, of course, that's a terrible way to inform a person of a possible side effect. Um, but if you say, you know, here are the things, these are the kinds of side effects that you can experience. You know, there've been a bunch of studies now around menstrual cycles and periods, and we see really a minority of people have a heavier period that we really only see it last for one menstrual cycle. It's pretty rare for anything else beyond that to be the case. That certainly is something, you know, that you can prepare for a little bit by making sure you have extra pads and tampons at home. Make sure you have some ibuprofen around the house too, because, you know, for some people, sometimes the breast tenderness or the menstrual cramping can be higher for them than, than for others, right? There's ways to disclose real symptoms and warn people that is being a jerk about it. And then there's a way to do it that helps them feel prepared so that they can handle it. And, you know, do the extra two minutes of work to prepare them instead of being lazy and not disclosing because you think they're better off not knowing. So speaking of which, um, you have a section in your book on birth control. Um, and birth control comes with a lot of side effects, um, like a lot. And I mean, we could talk about the fact that, for example, they tested a um, male birth control um, and then the men got sad on the birth control and they canceled the trial. <laughs> um, whereas the birth control for people who are assigned female um, has very similar side effects and is extremely popular. Um, and so you noted that a lot of people discontinue birth control because of negative or untolerated side effects. And I was actually wondering how do discontinuation rates for birth control compare to discontinuates for things like antidepressants or heartburn medications or other things that aren't specifically focused on female bodies, but also have a lot of side effects? I have no idea. I don't know how to answer that because I don't, I mean, I'm not a pharmaceutical person, so I didn't do a deep dive into like discontinuation rates across all pharmaceuticals. Okay. It's too bad. I'd be really curious to find out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it'd be interesting. I mean, I think you know, what I can say is that I do think that discontinuation of medicine generally is much higher than doctors probably want to admit. Um, and that there are a lot of reasons for it. One is the cost of medicine. You know, there are people who are like, do I pay rent or do I get my kidney medication? Right. Um, there's also, you know, and so I think that's, that's certainly part of it. I think there's the fact that it is so hard to get medicine sometimes that you have to call so many different places in order to finally, and then, you know, does your insurance cover it or not? Oh, you got switched to a different generic this time instead of the generic you used to use. You know, there are lots of reasons that the healthcare industry actually, and the insurance industry makes it incredibly hard for people to maintain drugs, even that they want to be on. <laughs> so there's sort of a bigger question there as well. Um, so in terms of how it compares, I don't know, but is it a problem in, in all sorts of ways? Absolutely. 
And I also wanted to cover this really quick. Um, we are running low on time, but I have so many questions. Um, so one of the things that your findings from the vaccine study in particular highlighted is how the reproductive system is extremely closely intertwined with the immune system. And I was wondering if you could talk about why. Um, because I think something that a lot of people also don't know, and this is just an FYI to people who menstruate, sometimes when you get sick, you will also have breakthrough bleeding. And you will also have heavier periods than you might have otherwise. And I I know this is news to a lot of people because numerous people have come to me in surprise. Um, so and that is another like evidence of how intertwined the reproductive system is with the immune system. And I was wondering if you could talk about why those two systems are so very close with each other. Sure. The There's a couple things going on. The most basic one is just the immune, the way the body responds to immune challenges um, involves bleeding and clotting processes. That is just like one of the things the immune system does. You could, the easiest way to think about it is thinking about like a cut on your skin and what happens when the immune processes take over, right? You want to limit exposure of outside pathogens. So you immediately start to clot, you form a scab, but at the same time, also you're trying to send a bunch of stuff over there, like a bunch of healing properties. So there's like different things going on, right? Of like sending immune cells. So increasing circulation to the site to get a lot of stuff there, but also then trying to shut everything off with clotting to keep away outside pathogens. So that's just part of the immune system. And then you take the uterus, which is a an especially immune organ um, for a couple of reasons. One is that what is the one organ in the body you can think of that does bleeding and clotting, I don't know, 400 times over the course of its life. And so therefore has a built up tissue infrastructure to expressly respond to times the entire body might be thinking about bleeding and clotting. Probably that uterus that's doing all the bleeding and clotting anyway, right? So if you already kind of have the system built up, it's like if you have a, a drought and like a river is dry and then the water comes back, where does it come back? Where that river is already laid, right? <laughs> where that divot is in the water. So it's the same thing, you know, the downstream effect is going to happen where that system, that process happens all the time. But then the last thing is that the uterus is full of immune cells, <clears throat> And it's highly responsive to immune challenges and to immune changes because of the fact that it has to be not only like sensitive to outside invaders, um, but also sensitive to managing and negotiating and discussing and figuring things out with a potential trophoblast to which it is usually partly related um, and yet not fully. And so it is negotiating, allowing something in to do all of this major like infrastructure change to its system while also protecting it at the same time from outside invaders. So, you know, and that is a, an incredibly tight balance because sometimes that exact, and this is some of the stuff I'm doing again for the next book, but some of like the exact processes of, of um, trying to help save your body from immune challenges are exactly the ones that if they get too strong can actually cause placental damage and then let in more pathogens down the line. So it's, it is so tricky to do. And if the body is experiencing constant immune challenge onslaughts, eventually something's going to kind of go awry. And one of the things you also bring up through this book is we have people who menstruate have almost sometimes a hyper awareness of 
there are periods, um, right? There are period tracking apps. <laughs> there are all sorts of books and websites. And, you know, if you have any potential symptom of anything, you can Google it. And the next thing you know, you're dying. Like that, <laughs> that's how that happens. Um, and I was wondering, do you feel, you know, you've just written a whole book on periods. Do you feel that people in the U.S. are in general too aware of their periods? Or is it something else? I think that's a great question because it's something that I struggle with. Um, On the one hand, I am always the kind of person who is uh, like more information is always better. And like my general trauma response is if anything bad happens, I need to become an expert in it. (laughs) You know, like I need to learn everything there is to learn about this issue so that I can somehow with my magical brain prevent this thing from ever happening again. Like I know way too much more about safe air and aerosol transmission of infectious disease than a biological anthropologist who studies period should know because that's what this pandemic has done to my brain. So on the one hand, I think that there is a lot of comfort in knowledge. And I think a lot of ways in which people should actually have more access to knowledge than they do. I think surveillance of the body is actually a different issue. And when we surveil the body to look for errors and to look for changes, that's kind of different and that comes from a different place. And so I think what, when, when somebody is finding themselves going down that knowledge rabbit hole, it's worth asking my, yourself like in that moment, okay, am I surveilling to look for problems or am I seeking an expansion of my knowledge? And I'm not, and sometimes those things overlap, right? And so it's, and I, and I think we could just be like a little kinder to ourselves about all of that. Um, because I do think that information has been withheld for so long that I think it's understandable that people have tried to find different ways to exert more control and more understanding over their bodies. Um, the last thing I'll say about this is that, and again, this kind of relates to um, not exactly periods, but often the processes of being pregnant. Um, there was a long period of time where where doctors thought and, and people just generally thought that um, if you have a bad dream, if you like while you're pregnant, if you go see something upsetting, if you do certain types of behaviors, it was going to impress upon the baby. It was this maternal impression idea. Um, and we sort of eventually disabused ourselves of that notion to some extent, though actually it turns out there are a lot of environmental things that can harm the fetus that we now just don't care about, you know, like a pandemic. Um, which is way more important than did you go to the circus, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, and But what I think has gotten lost in this, let's just discard the idea that all any of this stuff matters, is we've lost the fact that interoception, so the ability to, to think about and sense your body inside, is a real sense. It It is worthy. And it's worth it's worth honoring a person when they say something doesn't feel right. And a person deserves to be validated in that moment um, and, and to sort of be given the space and time to learn more about what's going on. Because again, a lot of the times we have those moments of something doesn't feel right or something feels strange or what is that sensation in my body doesn't necessarily mean anything's wrong, but a lot more information might actually contextualize that interoceptive moment and give us more insight into just how cool biology is. Well, Kate, I have like 50 other million questions. Um, This book is a rich text. And I mean that in the non-ironic way. (laughs) It's a rich text. There's so much stuff in there. Um, And I just wanted to say thank you for being here for a very short period to talk about periods. You're so welcome.
If you'd like to learn more about Kate Clancy and her book, Period, The Real Story of Menstruation, we've got links available at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. As a reminder, the show is wrapping up at the end of 2023, but stay tuned for our final episodes when we'll talk books, gifts, and podcasting life lessons. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. There's only a few of those left on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes. And we thank you for it. The show is produced by Bethany Brookshire and Rochelle Saunders and is edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Carolyn Wilkie, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 